Christmas is here. It's amazing. As we begin the Christmas season together this morning, um, I want to ask you guys actually two pretty important questions, and here's the first one. The question is, what is Christmas really all about? And here's what makes the statement. You ready? For you. I'm not asking you what Christmas is really all about. We're going to ask that in a minute. We're going to answer that for the next four weeks. What I'm asking you at the get-go is what is it all about for you? I mean, if we strapped you down, if we gave you truth serum, if we hooked you up you know, to the polygraph machine, if there was absolutely no way for you to wiggle out of the real answer, what is it? What's it all about for you? I think if you're a kid, it's a no-brainer. It's about the presence. You know, it is, and it's okay. I mean, I don't want you to feel bad about that. You know, I make a statement like that, and I'm conscious of the fact that I'm the pastor, and now all the kids in the room start feeling guilty about the fact that they're going to be up half the night on Christmas Eve, you know, and they're all jazzed about whatever it is that they're going to get. Don't feel bad about that. Enjoy that. That's wonderful. It's fun. You know what? If you strapped me down and you gave me the truth serum and you plugged me up to the machine and I had no wiggle room, I'd have to admit that there are at least moments every single Christmas season, not the whole Christmas season, but a moment here and a moment there where I wish that I could go back and enjoy it like that again. Because it was less hectic then. It was less stressful then. You know what? Nobody required anything from me when I was a kid. I had like two weeks off of school. It was awesome. It was amazing. The most stressful part of the Christmas season for me as a kid was having to go to church twice in one week. That's it. And, you know, and here's the thing. I didn't even mind that service all that much because I got to hold fire in church, which is lunacy if you think about it. I mean, we give fire to like our four-year-olds, you know, with hundreds of people packed in. And we're going to do it again this Christmas Eve twice. So, It's awesome. It didn't bother me. It was not a big deal. Christmas is great when you're a kid, but if you're hooked up to the machine full of the truth serum, it's all about the presence. And you grow up, and it changes a little bit. But for some of us, it continues to be all about the presence. And this time, not so much about the presence we get as it is about the presence we give. This room right now contains people that I would call gift givers. And by gift givers, I mean you express appreciation, you express affection, you express value, you express love to the people that you love by giving them gifts. You are the people that I want at my birthday party. Really. It's wonderful, it's thoughtful, it's amazing. But if you were strapped into the machine, if we filled you full of the truth serum juice, you'd have to say, look, the total win for Christmas for me is if I am able somehow to find the perfect present for everyone on my list. That's really what it's all about. Or maybe you host Christmas, you know, for you it's about hospitality and you're hosting Christmas, you do it every year or you're just doing it this year and you've been planning it out for months, unbeknownst to your husband, he's about to take the next three weeks off to re-landscape the yard, right? That's the deal. But in your defense, you told him to do that six months ago, and you have it in writing. It's the patio that he doesn't know about. But really, I mean, you are springing into action, and, and maybe your love language is acts of service. That's how you show people you love them, you serve them, and in this scenario... You make Christmas perfect for them. And that's the total win. That's the truth serum answer. It's perfect Christmas. Or maybe you want to make everything perfect because your love language is words of affirmation and your mom is coming for Christmas. 
Or your mother-in-law is coming for Christmas. Or death upon death, they're both coming. That's pressure, isn't it? And the walk-away win for you, like, I mean, this is it. If this happens, Christmas is a total win for me. This is what it's all about. It's just to have your mom or your mother-in-law or maybe even both say, wow. You knocked it out of the park. I mean, I doubt they'll use a sports metaphor, but, you know, for the guys, we can relate. You know, I mean, seriously, that was fantastic. That was beautiful. And I love the way you did this, and I like the way you did that, and this, and this, and the food, and this, and the way you decorated, and the new porch your husband put out there. Phenomenal. Great idea. And that's the win. That's what Christmas is all about. Or maybe it's about family, and your love language is quality time, and so somehow, you know, in the midst of all the craziness, you're hoping to spend quality time with some people. I mean, this is the only time of year that you get to see certain people, and truthfully, that's okay with respect to some of them, you know? You could have Christmas every leap year. That might be good with respect to some of them, but with respect to others, this really is it. And it's all about being able somehow in the midst of the madness to find a few moments of special quality time with those people. That's the total win. Or maybe you're the family peacemaker and the total win for you is keep the peace. And so throughout the holiday season, you know, you're, you're part-time referee and you're part-time counselor and you're kind of talking to people in advance of their arrival and saying, look, you know, when you said this last year, it didn't go over too well. Can we avoid that topic? And so-and-so, we need to watch them and this person. And, you know, at the end of it all, it's really exhausting. But if you were hooked up to the machine, you'd say, okay, keep the peace. Total win. Or maybe it's about family, but your family is either passed on or for whatever reason you're going to be separated from them this Christmas. And so it's just like totally depressing. And if that's you, I hope that you let us know because we may be able to find a family to have Christmas with you. And that would not be a burden on them. It would be a blessing to them and hopefully also to you. What is Christmas all about for you? And now here's question number two. You know it's coming. What's it really all about? What's it all about, really? Because that's what we're going to be talking about for the next four weeks. And as we do, I want you to take whatever your truth serum answer is, and I want you to compare it to the real answer week by week by week with the hope that at the end of it all, your truth serum answer will become your real answer. It'll begin to line up with what the Bible says that Christmas is really all about. And if that happens, that could change your Christmas and depending on where you're at in regard to your relationship with Christ, it could change your eternity. Christmas is a big deal. It's a big deal. So with that in mind, this morning we're going to begin a series of messages that we're calling Jesus Came Into the World. And every week we're going to look at a different passage of Scripture that tells us why Jesus came into the world, or to put it differently, what it is that Christmas is all about. And today we're going to look at a statement from the mouth of Christ Himself where He's going to tell us that Christmas, at least in part, is about truth. It's about truth. And so I want to think with you a little bit about truth. And we've looked at this in the past, but it bears repeating. You know, truth today is a difficult topic for us, and it's a difficult topic for all of the people in our little worlds, most of which we'll come into contact with this Christmas season. It's a difficult topic for everybody in our world as a church, this city, this community, 
this county and for the world beyond our borders, for that matter. For decades, we've been told the truth is something that, you know, is objective, or there's no objective truth, rather. It's all subjective. And what I mean by that is we kind of get to decide for ourselves what the truth really is, or actually what we've been told is that there's no such thing as objective religious truth. That when it comes to religion, you pick it. You've heard that, right? I mean, if Christianity works for you and Jesus is God for you, well, then Jesus is God for you and Christianity works for you and that's fine and that's what's true for you and He's the great forgiver of sins for you and He lived and died and rose again from the dead, true for you, not for me. I choose something else, something different. What befuddles me and frankly a little annoys me is that we don't do that in any other area of our lives. We don't do that with our schedule. Today is Sunday. Guess what? It's Sunday for everybody. And it's Sunday whether you believe it or not, isn't it? I mean, you can wake up this morning and sincerely believe with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength that today is Monday. Get up, take your shower, get dressed, shave, do whatever it is that you have to do. Go to the office, look around, wonder where everybody's at. Because it's Monday, isn't it? You show up at your lunch. I mean, because you've got lunch scheduled for Monday, so you're at the lunch. You've been stood up, or have you? Go to all of your appointments, go through all of your day. The cleaning crew at the office is looking at you like what are you doing here, you know? And I mean, and you're wondering, man, this is a really weird kind of day. I'm going to have to fire people. They didn't show up for work. Phone's not ringing. You can die believing it's Monday. What day is it? Sunday. And church starts at 9 for everybody, just throwing that out there. In case you've been missing my hands. We don't do this with physics. We understand that everyone who jumps off the Empire State Building without a parachute dies. We just get that. I mean, it, you know, we don't even need anybody to explain that. We just look up and go, yep, that's it. Nobody goes up on the top of the Empire State Building and says, listen, I realize everybody else on the planet who jumps off this building, well, what's true for them is that they're going to die, but for me, I'm going to land on my feet and walk away, no problem. Here it goes. We don't do that. Two plus two is four. Now, you can think it's five. You can sincerely believe it with all of your heart. It's not. You don't call your credit card company up, you know, because Christmas is coming and you're looking at your max. It's like 10000 and your balance is like 9223 You don't call them up and say, look, I got my bill. I was a little alarmed. But then I realized that balance is only true for you. I'm going with zero. That's what's true for me. It's ridiculous. Don't do that. These credit card companies are not in a good mood these days. Truth, by definition, is objective. Truth, by definition, is exclusive. Truth, by definition, is intolerant. It is because there's only one answer. Does that make sense? So look, when it comes to Christianity, for example, either the God of the Bible exists and Jesus Christ is His Son and the great Savior of men, or He isn't. He either is or He isn't. And no amount of faith on my part can make Him or create Him to be so. And no amount of unbelief on anyone else's part can destroy Him as such. He's either true and true for everyone or true for no one at all. It's necessarily the case. And one of the objections that I've heard to that statement is people have come and said, well, you know, okay, Tom, but that, 
here's the explanation for this. This is why it's an all-skate when it comes to religion, because all the religions are the same. And, you know, I mean, the phrase, and we've talked about this here, but they're different paths up the same mountain to God. You've heard that, right? And, but they're not. It sounds nice, but it, it just falls apart when you begin to look at the different religions. I mean, Christianity, Judaism, and Islam, and we'll throw the Jehovah's Witnesses in there, for example, and there are others, are monotheistic. They believe in one God, okay? Hinduism, 300 million gods. Confucianism, no God. So when you get to the top of the mountain, take whatever path you want. Who's there? What's there? Is anyone? Someone? How many? Who? See, it doesn't work. Christianity, Judaism, Islam believe in a personal God. Buddhism, no personal God. Many Jews deny any life after death. Well, obviously, Christianity and Islam and some other religions very vehemently affirm life after death, even die for it. They don't all teach the same ethic either. Oh, they're just, you know, God just wants everybody to be good people, so He gave us all these different options. It's like the menu at the Cheesecake Factory. No, it isn't. It, it isn't. Some religions tell you to love your enemies, and some tell you to kill them. Does that sound alike? Because it's not. And every religion in the world outside of Christianity says you've got to climb the mountain to get to God in your own strength and all by yourself, by being good. Christianity, I think, takes a bit more honest picture of our soul, holds it up and says you're not good, and you'll never make it up there apart from Christ. Through faith in Jesus, you're brought into the presence of God. You're taken, if you will, to the top of the mountain where there is the tree of life and the river of life. It's, it's irreconcilable. So truth by its nature is exclusive. It's objective, okay? And that's true not just of schedules and jumping off the Empire State Building and mathematics. It's true in this realm as well. But the second thing that I want you to think about, you know, is as we look at this idea of truth and we come to this statement of Christ, is that we're not always interested in the truth. And you'll see that Jesus points that out. Jesus is not subtle. He speaks very direct. Now, the reality is that a lot of us are not interested in the truth. And, and we all experience this at various times of our lives. You know, we all remember that time that we were in love and it's Mr. Right or it's Mrs. Right. And we're just convinced this is the right one. Remember that? And then the evidence starts mounting against him or her. Been married like 93 times. All their former spouses died on the honeymoon. They're wealthy because of the life insurance benefits. They have a policy on you. What do you want to do when the evidence starts mounting? And you're really in love. I mean, what do you want to do? Be honest. Remember, you're hooked up to the machine. You want to put your fingers in your ears and go, la, 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 I can't hear you because that would be terrifically inconvenient and painful. Don't want to do it. Married people do it all the time. You know, we see the signs of problems in our relationships, but we don't want to go there. We don't want to bring that up every time we talk about that. This is what happens, and this is painful, and I don't want to bring that up again because then he said and she said, and you know, and, but here's the thing. It doesn't fix itself, does it? But what we want to do is go, la, 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 ignore the evidence, don't deal with the truth. As parents, we do the same thing. We don't want to believe certain things about our kids, you know, and then the school administrator comes or teachers come or somebody else's parents come or somehow somebody is bringing to our attention this evidence that's inconsistent with what we want to believe to be true about these little people who have issued from us. 
We don't want to deal with it. We want to ignore it. Or maybe you find, you know, a lump somewhere in your body and you don't want to go to the doctor. And why is that? It's ridiculous if you step back from it. But man, when you're in it, you can totally understand, can't you? You don't want to go because what is the doctor going to say? He's going to tell me the truth and I might not want to know it. So truth is always objective. Sunday is always Sunday. Two plus two is always four. Jesus Christ, parenthetically, and we're getting to this, is God who alone saves. But we're not always interested in the truth. We've got all of these things that we bring to the topic that make us selective hearers. And then lastly, before we look at the statement of Christ, I want you to see, and I think this is really convincing, that there's a cost to ignoring the truth. And if you don't believe that, just ask that person who married Mr. or Mrs. Wright. That'll settle it for you. Or ask those folks who ignored all the warning signs and the bells and whistles that were going off in their marriage, or they ignored all the you know, evidence that was mounting with regard to what their kids were really like or really up to, or they waited too long to go to the doctor. Ignoring the truth is costly, and that's true in life, and it's true with regard to eternal life. It's true with regard to Christ and Christmas and what it's really, really all about. And as you'll see in a second, at least in part, it's about truth. And Jesus makes that clear. He makes it clear in a statement that he makes at the very end of his life where he's having this encounter with this man named Pontius Pilate, this guy who's the governor of Samaria and Judea, this part of the region, if you will, over in what we know now as Palestine. And he's a guy who received that appointment about seven years before this encounter with Jesus, and he received it through a guy who was a buddy of his, a higher up, if you will, in the government of Rome. So a little bit of, you know, special favor happening, perhaps. And he gets this appointment, and his job is basically two things. Number one, keep the peace. Number two, collect the taxes. That's it. It's really pretty simple when you boil it down. Keep the peace, collect the taxes, keep the peace, collect the taxes. He probably had that on his bathroom mirror. Keep the peace, collect the taxes. That's it. It's what it's all about for him. If he can do that well, he'll live long. <laughs> if not, then maybe not. And he hadn't done so well. At least not with regard to keeping the peace. One of the first things he did, and it's such a boneheaded move, at least as you look back on it, you know, everything seems a little clearer in the rearview mirror. Well, this guy gets his appointment, Pilate does, and what he does is he takes these pictures of the Roman emperor and he puts them all over the city of Jerusalem. Now, here's the problem with that. The emperor was worshipped in that day as a god, and from the perspective of the Jews, again, keep the peace, collect the taxes from them, it was as though he took idols and just littered their city. They went berserk, and you can understand why. They all got together and marched down to Caesarea, which is where his palace was. Pilate's is where he was primarily stationed, and for five days, they just protested and protested and protested. And so he took his soldiers and he dispersed them amongst the crowd. He's thinking he's going to scare them away is the idea. And at a given signal, and I don't know what it was, they all whipped out their swords assuming now that the Jews are going to run, and they don't run. They bared their neck and said, go ahead, cut our heads off. They called his bluff. And since his job is keep the peace, and since he knew that if he cut their heads off, he would have a revolt on his hands like nothing he's ever seen, he backed off and he took down all the pictures. 
But he was none too happy about that. Later on, one of the things that he did to provoke them is he he took money out of their temple treasury for a municipal project. He built an aqueduct in the city of Jerusalem with money from the temple treasury. So from the perspective of these people, it's bad enough, you know, that they're taxing us hugely. You know what that's like. But now they're coming into our house of worship and they're taking money that we've dedicated in worship to God and you're using that to build an aqueduct in our city. Not good at keeping the peace, pilot. Later on, he took this palace that he had in Jerusalem and he put these big shields, you know, with the emperor's name on them. And again, idolatry, at least from the perspective of these people. I don't know, maybe he didn't see that coming. Apparently, he didn't have some kind of a, you know, counselor from the Judaism perspective that could have helped him out with some of these decisions or he was dumb or he didn't care. But again, there's an uproar. Again, all of these letters now start going to Rome, but they don't go to Sejanus because Sejanus is dead. So his friend in the government has been executed. He's gone. They go to the emperor himself, who probably knows the history, and gets furious with Pilate and says, take them all out. Get rid of the shields. So Pilate is on the hot seat, guys. And now the Jews come again. And they come in another uproar. And they come with a man named Jesus. And they come making a charge that is very politically motivated. They come accusing Christ of all of these different things that are worthy of death in their eyes. They bring him to Pilate so that he can be executed because only the Romans could execute. But they come bringing him to Pilate saying that he claims, Jesus claims to be a king. And the strategy behind that is that in Rome, there was no king but Caesar. Caesar tolerated no rivals. Brilliant, because Pilate's already in trouble with Caesar. And so he meets with these Jewish leaders and he hears their accusations. And then he meets with Jesus alone. And John tells us this, John 18, verse 33. It says, so Pilate entered the head, his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, so here it is, are you the king of the Jews? You hear the charge? And listen to what Christ says. Jesus answered, do you say that of your own accord or did others say it to you about me. He's questioning the man's heart. He's saying, look, has the Holy Spirit of God come along and done a work in your heart that has given you eyes to behold me as the king, to hear my voice as the king's voice, to bow your knee before me as king? Is your heart in such a condition that you recognize the truth when he stands before you? Or are you just kind of parroting back what these guys have said to you so that they can get rid of me? Jesus answered, do you say that of your own accord or did others say it to you about me? And Pilate kind of puts that to rest. He says, am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you to me. So it's clearly not the work of the Lord in his heart. And then he says, what have you done? And Jesus answered, and I think this is really poignant. You know, we're so familiar with these things, we run past it. He says, my kingdom. You've got to stop when you're reading along there and consider what that implies. If, you're, if you have a kingdom, it means you are, in fact, a king. So he is claiming to be a king. But a king of a different kind of kingdom. Not the kingdom of Rome, but the kingdom of heaven. He says, my kingdom is not of this world. See, it's no threat to Caesar. And here's the proof. Here's how you know that my kingdom is not of this world. 
If my kingdom were of this world, my servants, the citizens of my kingdom, those who concern themselves with the matters of my kingdom, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. That is to say, they would have taken up the weapons of this world and they would have fought against this world. You know, if you think about Peter and the arrest of Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane, and you're familiar with that story, they come to arrest Jesus, and what does Peter do? He pulls out his short sword and he chops off the ear of the servant of the high priest. Do you remember that? And what does Jesus say? Good, that's a great move. Do that. Fight. Take up the weapons of this world, swords, propaganda, whatever. Use it. Do to them what they do to us. Is that what he says? He says, put the sword away. He heals the man's ear and he turns himself over in self-sacrifice that he might win the world to his kingdom, which is from a different place. We've got to compare that with our methods, I think, with what we say, with how we speak. Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting. That's the, this, here's the proof. My servants would have been fighting that I might not be t- delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from this world. And then Pilate said to him, so you are a king? And Jesus replied, and I don't care much for this translation. He says, you say that I am a king. What he's saying there is you're right in saying that I am a king. And then he says this, he says, for this purpose, I was born. Now, that's what we celebrate at Christmas, isn't it? For this purpose, I was born. And then he says, and for this purpose, I've come into the world. Now, hang on a second, because that's not a redundant statement. He's not just saying the same thing twice in two different ways. All of us can claim to have been born, but none of us, in fact, no one apart from Jesus can claim to have come into the world. Think about that. I mean, what is he claiming there? He's saying, look, I stand outside of time. I stand outside of history. I stand outside of the ebb and flow, the births, the deaths, and all the events that happen in this planet. I stand outside of it all as God. And in love and in mercy, I looked down upon this place and in obedience to my Father said, I'm coming into the world now. At Christmas. See, nobody else makes that claim. Nobody else can make that claim. Nobody else has risen from the dead either, but that's Easter. Yet it's true. Jesus is unique among all religious leaders, and Christianity, therefore, is unique among all religions, which makes what he says next so incredibly powerful. He says, for this purpose I was born. Again, that's Christmas. For this purpose, then he says also, I have come into the world. That's what only God can do. And what's the purpose? It's Christmas all about, at least in part. It's to bear witness to the truth. And if you think about it, that's exactly what we need for Jesus to do. We need for Him to come into the world to settle the arguments and to tell us the truth. And if He doesn't, guys, we'll never know what the truth is. We cannot. And one of the things I've been doing the last couple of weeks is I've been rereading Plato's Republic. And... Um, It's one of the greatest books that's ever been written. But one of the many brilliant things that Socrates says is he says, I only know that I know nothing. And that'll kind of, you know, it'll give you a headache if you think about it too much. But what he's trying to say, and I hope I can explain it, is this. He's saying, look, 
He's not talking about, I don't know today is Sunday. I don't know two plus two is four. I don't know that if I jumped off the Empire State Building without a you know, parachute that I, I mean, I'm going to die. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is that when it comes to these things that I hold to be true, I really don't know. And I can't know. And here's why. Because I don't know absolutely everything. To know anything for sure, you must know everything. And, and the reason is because, you know, I mean, there may be this thing that you hold to be true. You really are convinced, you know, like maybe today is Monday, for example. You're living your whole life out in light of that. But there's some scrap of evidence somewhere out there in the universe that you're unaware of, but that if you knew, it would change everything. Or maybe there's some new idea that you've never considered, or maybe no one has ever considered, but it's there yet to be considered. And if you considered it, well, that would change everything. There's some perspective that you don't know about that if you knew about, wow, there's some angle that you've never looked at this particular issue from previously, but if you looked at it from that particular angle, what you think is right would be wrong. Socrates is saying, look, I only know that I know nothing, and here's why, because I don't know everything. Parenthetically, who knows everything? The one who came into the world, guys, and him alone. And what did he come into the world to do? He came to tell us the truth. And he lived and died in light of that truth. And then he rose again from the dead, confirming it. Jesus says, for this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth because it exists, it is objective, it is the same for everyone. And then he says this. He says, everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. He doesn't say everyone listens to my voice. There's a precondition. He's saying everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Ouch. But it's the truth, isn't it? Because we're not always interested in the truth, and I think that's kind of where he's going with this. He's like, everyone who has a heart for the truth, everybody really who is interested in the truth, everybody who is made alive to the truth, everyone who is willing to overlook inconveniences and see the life that is offered through Jesus, which is truth. He's saying, everyone who is sincerely interested in the truth hears my voice and understands it as true. But everyone who isn't finds a way to reject it. And the question that you've got to deal with is, which one are you? Who are you in this story? Because Jesus Christ is God who has come into the world as the way and as the truth. And also as the life. Come from heaven to pay the penalty for our sins. That we might freely, through faith in Him, have a relationship with the Father. And that's what Christmas is all about. So I hope you get the presents, guys, that you're looking for. You know, the ones that you've told your mom and dad 5,000 times that you really want. That present. Get it. Enjoy it. I hope you find a perfect present for everyone on your list. I hope everything at your house, if you're hosting it, goes like unimaginably well. Mom, mother-in-law, bow and worship at your feet when it's over. That'd be awesome. And I hope you get that on video. I hope your husband doesn't throw out his back doing the yard work, that you get to spend quality time with everybody and nobody fights. Good luck on that one.
And I hope that you're not lonely this Christmas. And it look, if it looks like you're going to be, I hope you tell us. Because you don't need to be. But I hope more than anything that you hear the words of Christ as truth. Because then, even if you don't get what you want and it doesn't go so well, it's just not what Christmas is all about. And then you will find light and life eternal in Jesus. Bottom line, that's Christmas. And that's what I wish upon you. Okay? Let's pray. Father, we do thank you. We thank you for our Lord and for our Savior. We thank you that you have not left us helpless as humanity, but that you have purposefully moved into this world. We thank you for his perfect life lived in our behalf, for his death, which makes a covering for our sins. We thank you for the breaking of his body and the pouring out of the wine of his blood. Lord, we praise you for all that we have in Jesus, and I pray that amidst the hecticness and the stress of it all this year, that that's what we focus on. And Lord, I pray that if there's anyone here who has not seen Jesus as the truth, but today the Spirit has given them ears to hear it and eyes to behold him, that they would come to him in faith, that they would lay their lives, their sin, everything before Him, that they would receive freely His forgiveness, and that Christmas would indeed this year be full of light and life. We pray this for Your glory, and in Jesus' name, Amen.